At this time, the children are welcome to Children's Church, kindergarten through second grade. <coughs> Excuse me. Which you will find through this door on the left side of the sanctuary near the piano. <coughs> and could I ask the rest of us to open in our Bibles to the, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. And uh, you can find that in the Pew Bible on page 1126. It's uh, encouraging the, the way that the song that Stephen was singing just fit in together with the message. It wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, uh, organized, at least I didn't organize it that way. I guess, though, that <clears throat> Jennifer uh, saw the message in the passage in a similar way that I see it. I think that the, the text that we're talking about is about seeing the invisible, and uh, so that's the title for this sermon, Seeing the Invisible. We're in Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 37, going down to 45. It's uh, in, the, in the text here, the New International Version, it's called The Healing of a Boy with an Evil Spirit. It's not just another uh, miracle story about uh, you know, Jesus showing his power and convincing people of who he is. It's a bit more than that. This text is like popcorn. You know, sometimes you go into the restaurant and there's, uh, you know, they, they keep bringing you the bowls of popcorn. And uh, <clears throat> the, the thing about the popcorn is it's very salty. And of course, when you look on the menu, you find out that the drinks are very expensive. And so unless you're a cheapskate like me and you're unashamed to just ask for water so you can keep enjoying the free popcorn, uh, you're going to end up, uh, the, the restaurant is going to end up ahead. So they keep bringing you the popcorn. The object is to get you thirsty for something else. And this passage is here, I think, to get us thirsty for something else. This passage is opening the way, preparing the way for Pentecost. This passage brings some condemnation on the disciples and on the people who are not getting what Jesus is trying to give them. And uh, later, in the, as the plan of redemption unfolds, the good news comes. So, what we're going to see in this passage is two failures of faith. And then we're going to move beyond this passage and look further ahead in the, in the, you know, in the back of the book and uh, look further ahead in the development of the plan of redemption and see about how God brings a solution, how God brings a solution to this problem, this plight of the weak worldly faith of the disciples, the failing faith of the disciples. So let's read first and see the two failures of faith. We're in Luke 9, starting with verse 37. The next day, when they came, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. O oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. 
But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what what this meant. It was hidden from them, so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. So Jesus comes and rebukes the disciples for being unbelieving, for their lack of faith. But you know, the disciples do believe. They're here, they're following Jesus, they've left everything. They're trying to do all the things that he's asking. They're faithful. You know, he goes up on the mountain and they hang around and wait for him. And when he comes back, they bring their problem straight to him. The people do believe in Jesus. And so I think as we read this, there's a, there's a tension that we're meant to feel. That on the one hand, we sympathize with the disciples and, and the people in the crowd. And on the other hand, we're loyal to Jesus. Jesus has been displaying his, his glory and his power to us as we've been reading through the Gospel of Luke. And so we're, we're, we're pulled by Jesus and challenged by what he says. He is so discontented in his rebuke. He is so harsh. And so we feel a tension in this passage. And um, the tension is between the kind of faith that the disciples have, which is it's a natural kind of confidence. When they see Jesus doing things, then they get encouraged and excited and their faith grows. And when they don't see Jesus doing things, then their faith dwindles and fades and, and goes away. And so they have an up and down kind of experience. They have a worldly faith. And uh, what Jesus is demanding, what Jesus is looking for and calling for is a spiritual faith. A kind of faith that can stand and endure without any visible props, with invisible supports. And a kind of faith that can see what's invisible. So Jesus is not content and Jesus is uh, rebuking the disciples. So in this, in this account, the, the things that we keep seeing is we see two ways in which the disciples' faith comes short, in which the disciples' faith fails. And so the first way is their faith fails to endure. It's a failure of endurance. Jesus goes up on the mountain where his glory is revealed to James and Peter and John, and the disciples who are left behind, their faith isn't able to surmount the task, the challenge that is left to them. Jesus goes away and their faith doesn't endure. And uh, so the problem here is that a worldly faith depends on worldly supports. Worldly faith, the natural kind of confidence that we have, depends on worldly supports, the kinds of circumstances and experiences that will keep pumping us up, keep us going for a little while longer. Worldly faith uh, depends on worldly supports. And this is, the kind of, this is a theme that has been uh, developed throughout the book of Luke as we've been coming along uh, during the series. Remember the, the picture of faith that we were given earlier in the book, the centurion, that Roman commander 
who, uh, who sent a message to Jesus that, oh, Jesus, would you heal my servant? He didn't even need to come and see Jesus face to face. He didn't need to have Jesus appearing in his house and waving his hand and saying magic words and making preparations and doing all kinds of things. Just a message to Jesus. Jesus, if you will just say the word, I know my servant will be healed. It's the kind of faith that can stand without supports, without visible supports. It has invisible supports. And so that's the picture of the kind of faith the disciples are supposed to have. That centurion has set the mark and uh, Jesus is amazed. He has not seen such faith in Israel. And uh, so now the disciples need to catch up with that. And so uh, we see some of the experiences they go through. Remember when he was, uh, Jesus was asleep in the boat and the storm blew down on the lake and all these experienced fishermen were convinced that this is it. We're going to drown. We're going to be dead any minute. And uh, they wake up Jesus and they tell him this. They inform him of this. And uh, Jesus rebukes the, the wind and the waves. And he turns and he rebukes the disciples. Where is your faith? Come on, guys. I'm God's son. I've come into the world for a purpose. I've come into the world to redeem. I didn't come accidentally. I'm not just some guy from Nazareth. And I've called you... You are my disciples. You are my plan. I'm working with you. Do you think I'm going to drown just because of a storm? Where is your faith? So, you know, you know, what are we supposed to do with this? I mean, help us, Jesus. You know, this is, this is really good. It's good. We've seen how you can rebuke the wind and the waves. Now we believe. So they have a worldly faith, and they, need it, and they need, continually need it to be supported. And Jesus continues to call for that spiritual faith or the feeding of the 5,000. And there Jesus was just toying with them. He says, you give them something to eat. And they said, all we have is five loaves and two fishes. What, what can that do? And uh, Jesus and five loaves and two fishes is enough for the, all the 5,000. Jesus is dividing the food. He's breaking the food. And out of his hands comes food for 5,000 people. So Jesus is enough. And he's challenging his disciples to have a faith in him, to believe that the Son of God has come into the world, that he has stamped the devil under his foot, that his kingdom is finished, and that Christ is bringing in a new age, and that the disciples need to have a faith and to see who he is, and a confidence to uh, declare him boldly. And the people who hear the disciples, they need to hear them, and, and be persuaded and have faith like that centurion with invisible supports, not a continual pumping up. And so it's a worldly faith that they have, and that's the problem here. So they, uh, Jesus comes down from the mountain. He finds that the people have, have lost their faith. They're going astray. Satan is having a victory. He's, you know, he's got a hold on this boy's life, and he's not going to let go. And the people are all defeated and they're, uh, they're confused. And Jesus condemns them all. He says, when he's told that the disciples were asked to heal the boy and the disciples could not, then he says, woe to you, faithless, unbelieving, and perverse generation. And uh, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a condemnation of the disciples because they've just been mentioned. They've just been brought up. They were the ones who were responsible. They were left in charge. 
And so their faith is condemned. But it's a condemnation of everyone. Because what he says there in verse, in this, uh, verse 41, O oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. And every time that Jesus uses the word generation, he's talking about everybody. And uh, so it's not only the disciples that he's picked and sent out to go and carry the message into all the world that are supposed to have faith. But all of us who hear, we're all supposed to have faith. And uh, Jesus uh, is represented by these disciples and we're all supposed to have faith and believe. And uh, the whole crowd is a corrupt, faithless, unbelieving and perverse generation because the Son of God came and revealed himself to them and they didn't get it. So, so Jesus condemns them all but then he doesn't just leave them condemned. He says, bring the boy to me. Of course, even as the boy is coming, the demon takes a hold of him. It just demonstrates what a power Satan has, that Satan is not someone easy to deal with. The point is not that dealing with Satan is easy. The point is not that, that demon possession is a small thing or that Jesus only does easy things, or that he's asking his disciples to do easy things, it's something that's very difficult. So even as the boy is being brought to Jesus, again, the Spirit comes and convulses him and throws him around, and uh, Jesus rebukes the Spirit, heals the boy, gives him back to his father. Jesus supports the weak faith of his disciples. Jesus supports the weak faith of the crowds. So he sees, he sees the people in their worldly faith, how they continue needing to be pumped up and encouraged, and he pumps them up and he encourages them. Jesus is gracious, he's patient, and uh, he continues to, to support them. So then their faith revives and the whole crowd is celebrating and they're happy and they're amazed at the things God does. And the crowds are fickle. Because the next thing Jesus is telling his disciples is, you know what, crowds are going to hand me over. So the crowds are fickle. And uh, that's the worldly faith. It doesn't persevere. It always needs uh, continual supports. So, why is Jesus then so distressed about this situation? Jesus just appears to be exasperated. Listen to what he says. He says, Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? So, uh, what is it in particular that exasperates Jesus about this lack of faith? This worldly faith. Well, the first thing is that it's an insult to him. He is God's son. And when we need him to continually prove himself, we're saying that, you know, we don't, I don't believe who you say you are. In fact, you aren't what you claim to be. You claim to be God's son. No, you're not. I don't believe a bit of it. And it's an insult to him that he has come and he, he is God's son and we're denying it by our, our continual insistence that he prove himself by always setting another condition for him. Oh, do this and then I'll believe. Do, do the other thing and then I'll believe you. So it's an insult and then it's also a burden. It's a burden to Jesus 
because we continually need to have our faith pumped up. We continually need to have another sign, another help, another uh, show, something that we can see, that we can touch to remind us so that our faith can continue on, so that we can continue to believe him. And it's a burden to him that he has to continually do this. He doesn't get the enjoyment of having the fellowship of those who see who he is, recognize him and love him as uh, God's son. And then it's distressing to Jesus, this lack of faith. It's exasperating to him, this worldly faith that's so fickle. Because Jesus sees a future of trials for his disciples. He sees that he is going to go not just up a mountain, but he's going to go to heaven. He's going to return to the Father. He's not going to be there to continue doing miracles for his disciples all the time. He's not going to be there to continue showing himself and giving his teaching. And the disciples are going to need to have faith. They're going to, be able to, they're going to need to have a faith that can rely on invisible supports if they're going to be able to endure. And so uh, Jesus is exasperated with their lack of faith. And our lack of faith would be an exasperation to him as well. Where is your faith? Are you someone who doesn't have faith in Christ? Are you someone you know that you don't believe in Jesus? You don't rely on him as Savior, as Lord. You don't trust in him then you need to look at this, at this passage, at this teaching, and realize that what you are being asked to do is not something you can do. The kind of faith that you're being asked to put in Jesus Christ is a supernatural faith. And you need a work of God to do it. Evangelism is not just typical persuasion. It's not just working on somebody to hype them up and manipulate them and get them excited. We're not here to keep you pumped up. But we're here to talk about Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you can see what's invisible. You can see right to heaven. If you get this kind of faith that Jesus wants you to have, it's a supernatural kind of faith. That's what you need. That's what you're going to need to get saved. That's what you're going to need to be a Christian. That's what you're going to need to see the kingdom of God and to stand on the last day in his presence. If you don't know Christ, if you don't have that kind of faith, you're going to have to cry out to Jesus. And when you've got it, you say, look, Mom, no hands. It's a, it's a faith with no visible support. Do you have a casual faith? Are you one of these people who kind of, you can kind of take it or leave it? And Jesus is one of the nice things in your portfolio of things that help you and one of the ways that you deal with, with crises in life. Do you have a casual faith? Is Jesus someone that you're willing to come to and you're willing to include him uh, along with the other things that you depend on? Oh yeah, Jesus, he's good. He's good too. If you have a casual faith, think of how this comes across to Jesus. It's an insult and it's a burden. He has to continue to pump up and hold up your faith. It's not real faith. And, uh, and what will happen to you in the day of trial? What will happen to you when he isn't there uh, pumping you up and encouraging your faith? So you need to have a supernatural faith. Do you have an up and down faith like me? Do you have a faith that comes and goes 
that when Jesus seems to go up on the mountain, then your faith sort of seems to slide, then you need to ask yourself a hard question. Do I have real faith? Do I have the spiritual kind of faith that Jesus wants me to have? Or do I just have a worldly faith? Is my faith only there when it's being pumped up and encouraged? Am I able to see through to heaven? Do I really have that uh, vision? Jesus, be thou my vision. Or am am I only seeing worldly things and depending on worldly supports for my faith? Are you resting on Christ or are you resting on lots of thoughts and ideas and teachings? about Christ. Are you resting on Christ or are you resting on all kinds of experiences and feelings and uh, the company of others? We need to rest on Christ. He is the sure foundation. He is the rock. The rock that will never be moved. You can't see Him. I've never seen Him. But He is the sure rock. We can rest on Him and rely on Him. Where is your faith? So that's the first failure. It's a failure of endurance. The disciples' faith couldn't endure when Jesus went up on the mountain. And uh, the second failure is a failure of hearing. The disciples are hard of hearing. It's a failure to be able to see the invisible, to be able to see the things beyond this world, the things that aren't worldly. A failure of hearing. Worldly faith only hears worldly things. And a natural kind of confidence always has to have you know, things in the world that, that it can fix itself on because it can't fix itself on the, the invisible things. So faith, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And so Paul says we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is passing away. But what is unseen is eternal. So we need to have the kind of faith that can see right through to the invisible. You've got to have you know, the x-ray vision. You know, I used to always you know, see those things in the comic books, you know, the, the glasses you could buy that you could have x-ray vision. I always thought that would be really great to have. Of course, it's... Uh... You want me to speak louder? Of course, there's no such thing. But there is such a thing, isn't there? There's a, there's a vision that can enable us to see right through to Christ, right through to where He is seated by the Father. And uh, that's a vision that we get through the Holy Spirit. So let's look at, at this failure in Luke 9. Look at verses 43 the, to 45, the, that last paragraph. Uh, While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, He said to His disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. You know, in the original, if you have a King James or something like this, in the original, the way he says it is, let these words sink into your ears. Okay? He's telling them, hang on guys, hold on, listen now. you got channel D open. Okay, open channel D. Here it comes. And here's what he says. He says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. And uh, so the disciples, you know, they get this message. It's not a complicated message. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the the hands of men. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over. 
Um, it's a message that he gave just before he went up on the mountain about a week and a half ago. Uh, when Peter confessed Christ, he gave detail about it. He talked about how he's going to be uh, put on, he's going to be killed and on the third day raised to life. And then he says, if anybody wants to come after me, he has to take up his cross and follow me. He went into detail about it. And now he's repeating it. It's not a complicated message. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. And the disciples couldn't get it because their minds were worldly. And they were only able to grasp and comprehend worldly things. They weren't able to hear things you know, that, that are spiritual. So they're like Israel. You know, Israel comes, uh, is brought out of Egypt. God comes, he sends Moses, and he brings Israel out of Egypt and out into the desert. And as they're going along, they can see all the, all the signs that God has done, all the plagues that he did back in, in Egypt. They can see right with them each day, each hour, the pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night, God is present with them. And so then they get to the edge, they get to the edge of the Red Sea and they can see the water, the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea. It's right there in front of them. They can see it. And then they turn around and they can see there's Pharaoh's army. And there's Pharaoh and all his people are coming. And so they can see all these things. And so what do they do? They say, oh, we know that God is, is faithful. We, we know that God promised Abraham 430 years ago. And God will not fail in His promise today. No, that's not what they do. They start crying out there, going crazy. And Moses himself is crying out, oh, God, what have you done? Uh, where is your faith? So they, they didn't see God. And uh, so this, this is the constant story of Israel. So they're, they're, they're brought to the mountain, you know, where, where God gives the commandments. God comes down on the mountain and, uh, and He's revealed to the people and He's giving the commands in this loud voice and there's this trumpet that's getting louder and louder and louder. And the people are terrified because what? They see the presence of God. They hear the manifestation of God. And so they say to Moses, don't let God talk to us anymore. You go and you go up on the mountain and let God talk to you and then you come and tell us everything he says and we will do it. Okay? So Moses says, that's good. He goes up on the mountain. He's up there for some weeks. A few weeks go by and the people say, hey, you know what? We need some gods. We need gods to go before us. Eh. You know, they don't remember. They don't see with their hearts. Their hearts are blind. And they, they don't hear with their ears. The words don't sink in, but uh, they just bounce off. And so that's how the disciples still are. They, um, you know, they're there with Jesus. They're seeing the things, but it's not penetrating in. And uh, a worldly faith, it, it just can only see those worldly things. It can't see the spiritual things. So faith is, is hearing. Faith is, is perceiving things that are uh, beyond the perception of natural man. So Jesus speaks. The things he speaks are clear. They're easy to understand. But the disciples don't get them because the disciples' expectations, the disciples' concerns, 
The disciples' interests are all worldly. They're concerned about a worldly problem, Roman occupation. They're concerned about the Romans. And Jesus has come to save them from sin. They're they're looking for a worldly deliverer. And Jesus has come as a spiritual redeemer for all mankind. Something far greater than they were even hoping for. But their minds are set on worldly things and they don't see what Jesus is bringing. So they're looking for worldly solutions and uh, they're looking for a worldly kingdom. 1 Corinthians 2.14 This is the situation for people who are natural. It says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So Jesus talks about the cross to his disciples, and the disciples don't get it, because the cross is for solving a spiritual problem, which the disciples aren't able to perceive. They don't recognize their spiritual problem of sin. And the reason they don't recognize their own spiritual problem of sin is because God is very small in their thoughts. And sinning against God is a small thing to them. And God's majesty is something very far away that's in books. Maybe they hear the words, but the words don't sink in. And so, uh, so they're not concerned about sin. They don't have the sense that they need to be redeemed from their sin. And so Jesus talks about the cross. And, um, you know, they don't understand They don't understand what he's talking about. Yeah, I understood. You said you're going to be handed over to men. But what is that about? I mean, how can the king get... So it doesn't connect. So the cross is not worldly, but worldly people can't understand it. You can make the cross as clear as you will. You can express the gospel in the clearest terms. You can lay it out for people... You can illustrate it and explain it, but they will not see it. They will not grasp it. They will not understand it because their hearts are hard. As it says here of the disciples, it is hidden from them. So, how will I get a spiritual faith? You know, God is small to us today. God is small to people today. And so we're concerned about the church. We're concerned about seeing the church grow and the church do well because we all come here and we sit in here on Sunday morning. We, you know, we want our church to be well and we want churches to do well. We want the cause of Christ to do well in the world often because of worldly reasons. And we want to use worldly means to advance it because it's a worldly concern that we have. We're not truly concerned for the things of Christ And so we're content to say, let's bring people in with entertainment. Let's bring people in by whatever means we can. And you know, it's good to do outreach uh, in every way we can. But we'll, we'll so easily turn to all kinds of worldly things unless we have that spiritual faith at the heart of who we are so that we see the gospel, we see the cross, we see Christ. Otherwise, our worship will turn into entertainment. Our church growth will turn into just methods and organization. And our preaching of the gospel, our living of the gospel, will turn into nothing but meeting felt needs. So we need to be able to have a spiritual grasp, an ability to see the invisible. 
and to hear the word of God and let it sink into our ears. How am I going to get this kind of spiritual faith? A guy like me who, you know, I get afraid of people, I get afraid of what someone's going to say to me, and all of a sudden, because I'm afraid, I start acting funny and weird, and then people don't like me because of how weird I act, and then I get more afraid, and, you know, I just get all tangled up in, in myself, and I'm not focusing on Christ, I'm not seeing the needs of people, I'm not seeing the world that Christ has called me to reach, and I'm not seeing the resources He has for me, but I'm focusing on myself. How am I going to get this kind of spiritual faith that God is calling me to have, that Christ wants me to have? This passage looks ahead. This passage is just, uh, you know, like the popcorn at the beginning of the meal, and it's pointing ahead to other things. Look at verses in chapter 9, Luke 9, verses 31, 41, and 51. They, they point ahead. Verse 31, when Jesus is up on the mountain uh, with Peter, James, and John, and he's uh, speaking with Moses and Elijah, they appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus, and they spoke about what? His departure, which he was about to bring, a, bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Something's coming. Something's coming. Look at verse 31. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 41. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? Before what? Before, look at verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Something is coming. Let's move ahead and let's look and see what it is. When, when you get to, to volume two of Luke's work here, it's called the book of Acts, and the, the first chapter, and verse eight, here's Jesus getting ready to leave, getting ready to go up to heaven. And what does he tell his disciples? So that they will be able to endure, so that they will be able to have spiritual insight. Listen to what he says, Acts chapter one, verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus gives us power through the Holy Spirit so that we can have that kind of faith that he wants us to have. Look in 2 Corinthians. I want us to turn here and in this passage I want us to see the fulfillment of all the things that we've been talking about. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Chapter 3, you'll find it on page 1143 in the Pew Bible. Now, it's not just Moses who goes up on the mountain and talks with God face to face and his face begins to shine because of the fellowship he's had with God. Now, it's not just Jesus who goes up on the mountain and is transformed in his appearance because he's, he's up there in a heavenly mode of prayer and, and heavenly visitors are coming to him and he's having fellowship with the Father. But look what's happening here in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting with verse uh, 15. We go up to the mountain, we see God face to face and our faces begin to shine as we are transformed into his likeness through the work of the Holy Spirit. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting with verse 15. That's on page 1143, down in the corner. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. They're blinded because they're worldly. 
But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So our faces are now being unveiled before God, and we're beginning to see with eyes of faith, with eyes of the heart, and to behold the glory and the majesty, the goodness, the grace of God. And it sinks into our hearts. It sinks into our ears. And we can understand. And it transforms us. And people around us see something in us and they don't understand what it is. They can't, they can't put their finger on it, but it's something. And it attracts them and it draws them. And so the Holy Spirit works in us to, to begin to transform us. There's hope for you. There's hope for you and me that we can have the kind of faith that Jesus wants us to have. And this, this work of the Holy Spirit not only transforms us, it, um, it uh, gives us spiritual insight, that ability to see and hear. So we're not going to be deaf like the disciples were. We're not going to be worldly deaf people, but we're going to have the ability to see and to hear, to savor and to enjoy the glory of God and the invisible spiritual things. So that's what it says here in chapter 4. Just continuing right down. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said... Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. How do you get it? How do you get the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? God makes it shine in your heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. So, you read the Bible and you pray, you know, Everybody should read their Bible. Everybody should pray. But the point is that God comes and works in your life. The point isn't that, oh, aren't I good because I read my Bible and I prayed? No, the point is that you meet with God and God does something and he meets with you and he works in your heart and he gives you a spiritual insight to see the invisible and to appreciate the majesty, the glory, the wonder, the beauty of all the treasures that are yours in Christ. <clears throat> so then, uh, so the, this, uh, this work of the Holy Spirit gives us that spiritual insight that the disciples were lacking. And what, uh, what else was it that the disciples were lacking? They were lacking the endurance, the ability to endure. And isn't it the same thing that we find here in verses 7 through 10? That, uh, that the work of the Holy Spirit produces great endurance in us so that without visible supports, by means of invisible encouragements, we're able to endure and to stand in faith. So uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through, uh, through 10. But we have this treasure, this spiritual illumination, in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. 
<clears throat> so there's a power to endure through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So what are we going to do? What are we supposed to do with all this? God is at work in our lives. So what shall we make of this and where shall we go? There's a weakness in us. There's a worldliness. There's a, a selfishness, a self-reliance, a, a looking to the things of the flesh. But God is working in us to see spiritual things. Draw near and behold. Come up the mountain. Take the veil off and spend the time with God. Read your Bible. Pray. Fellowship with God's people and tell the good news. It's just those basic things. But as you do that, God is manifesting himself in you. He's working in you so that it's not just a book that you read and it tells you what you're supposed to do and you go do it, but it's God speaking to you and opening your heart and words sinking in and his Holy Spirit working and illumining you and you begin to be transformed and the Holy Spirit comes and meets you. And so let's call out for spiritual illumination. This is what Paul prays in Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may have knowledge and wisdom and revelation to see all the things that God has provided for us in Christ. So let's, let's long for, let's seek and pursue spiritual enlightenment, eyes to see and ears to hear. And uh, if you don't know Christ, if you don't have faith in Christ, Call out for Christ to reveal himself to you. Call out for this gift. There's a gift waiting for you, waiting for everyone who comes to faith in Christ, a gift greater than anything that, that we've ever received in this life, better than anything that we could give to you or, or, or imagine for you. All the treasures and riches that God has for you, ready for you. Come to Christ the Holy Spirit will work in your heart and open your eyes so that you can begin even now to see and savor these treasures that you have and all the goodness that God has stored up for you for an enjoyment throughout all ages and for all time to come. Let's pray. Father, work in our hearts. Enable us to see beyond the confines of this world and these narrow interests of our selfish hearts. Help us to be filled with love for you and worship for you as you open our minds and open our hearts and as you make your light shine in our hearts. Through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a different